Rude Awakenings Chapter 8 Read by Achan Suchito and Nick Scott Three weeks into their six-month walking pilgrimage, Achan and Nick are now following the Gandak River south, heading to the Buddhist holy places of Bihar. Chapter 8 Cycles Achen Suchito November 26 Another dark evening and we were still walking. Not that I was eager to get anywhere. Everywhere we arrived seemed to display the same characteristics as the place we had just come from. Progress itself was more psychological than geographical. The land always looked much the same, in paddy fields stretched out and scantily decked with clumps of mango, banyan and bodhi trees. On its stage the pujas, the walking, the going for arms and the occasional halts for tea came round repetitively. The progress was a matter of being undone and swallowed by the forces around me, the bantering inner and outer voices, the sweat and grime, the grit in the throat. The balance came through simply focusing on these things. Through yielding into the dullness, my plodding assumed an ox-like doggedness, pushing steadily forward. Walking wove a net of assurance, giving me the semblance of control over my destiny. Even as the world flooded through me, I could take refuge in the appearance of being able to walk through and away from it. Rationally, I knew better. There would be no getting away from the heat, the where are you going, the psychological chafing, bodily discomfort and fatigue, except by ceasing to resist them. But such abandonment takes time. So when I contemplated the urge to keep going and questioned it, all the real reasons and needs came down to one point. I want to escape being vulnerable. Let me find a place where I can close a door. But on the open road of a pilgrimage, all the doors are open. And they do not open onto shrines and sunsets and peaceful places, only onto more doors that gape as vacant as the stairs and questions that you pass through. Where are you going? The question penetrates. So you keep walking. Maybe the night will hide you. The pivot of the day for us was the arms round, commenced by the ritual of adjusting my robes and slowing the pace. Arms fairing makes you completely vulnerable to the unknown scene around you. It is time for realising humanity in a way that few people can. There was a kind of dignity in the humility of the lifestyle that the Buddha espoused. They do not brood over the past. They do not hanker after the future. They live upon whatever they receive. Therefore, they are radiant. More than any other time, on arms round I tried to walk the balance between the palpable agitation of Nick behind me and the uncertain attention of the village ahead 
I centred on the bhikkhu's rules for alms gathering. I shall go well restrained in inhabited areas. This is a training to be done. I shall go with downcast eyes. This is a training to be done. I shall go with little sound in inhabited areas. This is a training to be done. Sometimes we would leave the village only to be called back. Sometimes the movement would naturally take us to a centre point beneath a tree or beside a shrine and leave us there. Sometimes the movement turned into chanting before it left us sitting in stillness. It could take a long while for the mind to give up and go still, but when it did, the bright signs appeared and the event happened, bustling, beckoning, a hut, elders, a burlap sack on the earth floor and plates of leaves. A new anonymous friend emptied flakes of some kind of grain called chula onto the leaves and then ladled curd onto them from a goatskin bucket with his hand. I shall accept the alms food appreciatingly. This is a training to be done. I shall eat the alms food appreciatingly. This is a training to be done. I shall eat the alms food with attention on the bowl. This is a training to be done. I shall not make up an extra large mouthful. This is a training to be done. I shall not eat stuffing out the cheeks. This is a training to be done. I shall not eat scraping the bowl with a finger. This is a training to be done. After the meal, we gave the blessing chant and a few words on peace or generosity or what we were doing. It brought me again to brightness, to the place of belonging to what is good and recognising its universality. And a little more of the hide around the heart would wear away. Because of this, it got easier to rest for a brief period in the middle of the day with a bunch of children squatting around me, exchanging loud whispers, pointing my heavy leather sandals, and occasionally venturing into a few inquiries. Where is your house? Then we would just gaze at each other, though they could always stare longer than I. After all, they had an answer. We moved past Loriari Raj, and a shoken pillar set back from the road with a sign that had completely rusted. Next to the untranslated Ashokan edict, a few people were hacking the limbs from a mango tree. The Ashokan ideal, with its exhortations to plant and protect trees, had long since gone. We stopped walking for a few minutes, but there was no stillness. Night in a Shiva temple. A dusty windowless room was unlocked for us. Here, Shiva was addressed as Pashupati, Lord of the Animals, a recollection of his pre-Vedic origins when he was Rudra, a fertility god in the ancient mother goddess religion of India. He was part of the old order that the Aryans overturned. They brought with them gods not born from nature but subduing it. Yet the cycle always turns. As the Aryans settled into the agrarian culture, warrior deities lost their relevance, and their images could no longer command. So it was easy for the Buddha to mock and dethrone them all. 
condemning the sacrifice of animals and worship based on mere superstition. Even more humiliating, he allowed the Vedic gods a few walk-on parts in minor heavens of his cosmology of Sangsara, the realms being cycled through while ensnared by Dukkha. For a determined Buddhist, the heavens, of which there are many, are merely a phase in the cycle and grant no final release. The old gods died not from persecution but from ignominy. As part of the same movement away from the gods, the earliest of the great spiritual poems called the Upanishads were already being recited in the Buddha's day. In a similar turning inward that placed the self-sacrifice of austerity above the sacrifice of animals, the Upanishads proclaimed a simple dualism between a transcendent god, Brahman, and soul, Atman. Devotion to God was a primary means of attaining the bliss of transcendent unity. And, by leaving the structure of family and caste undisturbed, such devotion was acceptable to the Orthodox. But the cycle turned again. Devotion and ritual required gods with forms, and so the formless god acquired many. So the gods returned, though they were essentially different from the old Vedic deities. Brahma, and more vigorously Shiva and Vishnu, are transcendent and immanent. They are the creators of the cycle of existence, as well as manifesting in forms that participate in it. As such, they are aligned to that feminine power that gives birth, is sought after by its creations, consumes them, and gives birth again. Virgin, Madonna, and Dark Goddess. Shiva and Vishnu are male, though sinuous, forms, but their activities are characteristic channels for goddess energy. Vishnu is the recumbent dreamer from whose navel a lotus buds and opens to reveal Brahma, the creator of the universe. Brahma opens his eye and a world system is born. He closes it and the world ends. A thousand of those births and deaths constitute a day in Brahma's life. 360 of those days make up a year. After 100 of those years, and a vast carnival of world systems, of heroes and wars and glory and decay, the world play is over. World-creating Brahma and the lotus are drawn back into the body of Vishnu until the next dream sends forth a new lotus. Meanwhile, Vishnu manifests in the world in mortal male forms, such as Krishna and Rama, whose purpose is to defend or re-establish true Dharma. Some of Shiva's roles display the same female knowledge and his consorts are powerful and greatly revered. Shiva is the turner of the cycle of creation and destruction, of fertility and death. Shiva is Nataraja, the supreme dancer, whose dancing brings the created world to its end. In another turn, he is trampled under the feet of his ferocious consort, Kali, who represents time, death and destruction. Shiva's forms are Maya, illusion. Shiva's energy is Shakti, 
is the weaver and destroyer of the play, and it is female. After a night in the utter windowless dark, morning came, and with it this flower-like world and the new celebration. The temple priest, freshly bathed in spotless white dhoti and groomed hair, lovingly attended Shiva's image like a bride, bathing it with pure water and decking it with blossoms as he rang the god's bells and sang a lilting hymn. I knelt nearby watching. Could it be that to celebrate the play of the world is the way to transcend it? Nick Scott Our daily arms rounds were a great learning experience for me. Day after day I'd fail. I'd try to walk into the village, five steps or so behind Ajahn Suchito, slowly and calmly, keeping my eyes on the ground. I would try, but in no time I'd be looking over his shoulder, trying to spot the best possible place to stop. I'd quickly learn that we got better food from the big brick houses in the middle of the village, with the TV aerials on their roofs, than from the mud huts on the village edge. My mind would start yammering, and I'd often end up trying to give advice. A, a bunty, that looks a good place over there. Mentioning a little temple or tree that just so happened to be in the middle of the village, next to the big houses. Afterwards, I'd always resolved to show more restraint next time, but usually to no avail. Once we'd stopped and sat down, my agitation would subside. There was nothing left to do now. All I could do was be open and wait. My mind, so intent on the outcome, would be right there in the moment. That waiting, not knowing, could be so powerful. When someone did offer us food, it would be such a beautiful blessing. The offering would manifest in so many different ways that I could never predict how it would be. But there was one infallible rule. Whoever first asked would be the one to feed us. No matter if there were a hundred people around us, or whether the asker was rich or poor, no matter if all they asked was if we had eaten, and others then asked whether we ate rice, chapatis, and so on. It was now that person's duty. And duty is a very powerful thing in India. To begin with, we weren't having breakfast. Ajahn Suchito had wanted us to live on one meal a day, as the Buddha recommended his monastic followers to try and do when possible. So that one midday meal was often it. Whatever we were given would have to last us the next 24 hours. As we went on, that resolve slowly got worn away by my offers to stop at a tea stall in the mornings and then perhaps to have a little something with the tea. If there's an Achilles heel in Ajahn Suchito's ascetic armour, it's his fondness for tea. Tea stalls are everywhere in India, erected wherever there's an opportunity to make a small living from the passing trade. 
cobbled together out of planks, plastic sheeting and anything else that comes to hand, they don't seem much to us. But to the owner, they are everything. They live and work in them, willing to make tea at any time or day. At least one member of the family, if not all of them, will sleep there to protect their meagre investment. There was a tea stall that morning. It may have been because we'd been living on such meagre rations for the last few days, but to me it seemed a particularly fine example. It was neatly turned out with two benches either side of the main table and protected by a blue plastic awning. The table had a clean blue and white check plastic cloth on it and a neat row of small dishes containing brightly coloured snacks. Everything was tidy and the ground round it had been recently swept. The owner sat with a welcoming smile at one end, his son beside him stoking the small clay fireplace with a few sticks. We ordered two teas. It comes as a surprise to us English that in India, the land of tea, they don't make it the way we do. Instead, water, milk, sugar and some fine tea dust, which is presumably cheaper than the tea leaves India exports to the rest of the world, is brought to the boil in a small saucepan over a fire. A little spice is usually included, cardamom or perhaps a small piece of ginger. Once boiled, the mixture is strained through a muslin cloth into small glasses. All over India, the price for a glass of tea was one rupee. What varied was how much tea one got and how good it was. The tea at this store was particularly good, as were the small plates of curried chickpeas that Ajahn Suchito agreed to have with it. The father and son were friendly and attentive, and when we left, I was so taken with their little stall that I wrote out a sign which read, The Best Tea Shop in the World, and showed them how to fix it on the front of the stall. They were pleased, even though they couldn't speak a word of English. The tea stall was positioned where a road came up and over the bund. I'd noticed this huge dike on the way from the river to Udapur Nature Reserve. It was built by the British to retain the great Gandak in flood. It was my map which called it a bund. The map also showed it following the river south to where it joined the Ganges, some five days walking away. So I suggested we try walking on it. It should be better than the road and would give great views of the river and wildlife. The bund did provide great walking. It meandered through the paddy fields its sides planted long ago with trees that gave us shade, and there was a well-worn path along the top, used as a local highway by people on foot and bicycle. There were no noisy lorries or buses, no need to map-read, and there were even mileposts for counting off our progress. It was by far the best walking we'd had. Ajahn Suchita was obviously enjoying it. The simplicity allowed him to use the walking as a meditation. He'd get so absorbed and reluctant to stop that he'd even miss someone offering us tea. For me, though, there was only one problem. We were more than half a mile from the river, and so there was no view of either it or its wildlife. As we walked the Bund, we had an overview of the surrounding land. 
We were some 30 feet up on the only piece of higher ground, passing through a vast flatness of chequered fields, villages dotted everywhere. Most of the villages were on the side of the Bund away from the river, protected from its flooding, and tracks came up and over the Bund to their fields on the other side. There were also occasional small communities on the top of the Bund, which we would pass close to through the day. At first light, there was the pungent smoke from small fires lit outside front doors, with much of the family squatting around them, warming themselves, their tethered animals snorting plumes of white vapour. No adult women were to be seen then. Presumably they were inside preparing the first meal. Later, we'd see the people making their way to the fields, herding their cows and water buffaloes ahead of them. Around 10.30, they returned alone for their midday meal, and then they'd be back home again with their animals well before sundown. Each hut would then have at least one cow or water buffalo outside, munching and snorting at raised troughs made of the same grey mud as the huts and filled with chopped green straw, the stalks of the last harvested crop mixed with water. The animals are such an integral part of their lives and so important in extracting the maximum from the land that I could see why the Hindus had come to worship the cow. This land would be very productive. The soils fertilised each year by the silt left by the flooding Gandak and with a water table readily available near to the surface. It all seemed very green and prosperous, looking down on it from the Bund. The only wildlife we saw, though, were birds, a few small species in the trees, and little egrets and paddy birds in the wetter fields. Both are small herons that stalk the rice fields of India, hunting small fish. Egrets are all white, while the paddy birds look a dull brown in the fields. But when taking off, their white wings give the same effect as those of the egrets. A flutter of white, looking like large white handkerchiefs suddenly caught in a breeze. Walking on the bum was enjoyable, but I couldn't let go of the great gandak so nearby. I kept looking for a glimpse, but to no avail. The idea of this big river that I imagined full of wildlife was calling me. And so on the second day, I couldn't resist any longer. I suggested we try walking by the river, the excuse provided by the Bund taking a couple of turns. By cutting across to the river, we might take a shortcut. The suggestion didn't go down well, but Ajahn Suchito reluctantly agreed. So we set off across the fields on a path that was going in just the right way. At least initially. After a bit it took a turn, then a while later a couple more, and slowly, creeping up on me, came this feeling that I was lost. I could find neither the river nor our way. Unlike rivers in England, the Gandak's edge was undefined. There were wetlands, grassland and sandbanks, but no path wandering along the bank as I'd imagined. Eventually, with me suitably chastened, we had to double back to the Bund, having lost half a day's walking. 
The third day on the Bund, we stopped at sunset to do our daily puja and meditation before dark. We sat on the grassy bankside with a view across fields to some vultures that are collected near the carcass of a dead cow. Village dogs were at the carcass, snarling at the vultures if they came too close. So they stood, stared and waited, hopping backwards when growled at. Thus ends the lives of all farm animals in rural India, in the same way that animals ignore their dead, no longer relevant to the living, Indians abandon their dead and dying farm stock to be recycled by the dogs, hyenas and vultures. Despite the interest of this distant scene and the beauty of the sinking sun beyond it, as usual, I was disturbed. On this pilgrimage, I never had that oneness with nature that I associated with walking in England. This time, I soon heard the murmuring of voices behind us up on the bund. I stopped myself looking round, but I just couldn't relax. When we finished and turned to climb back up the slope, a small crowd had assembled, including two better-dressed men with a moped between them. I walked up to the path in a negative state. Why do they have to stand there and look at us? Can't they see that we want to be left alone? Achan Suchito November 29th At the end of a shining day, the red sun was swollen and sinking on the horizon. Its final gaze was cast over the life-death business of some dogs disputing the remains of an ox or a buffalo with a gang of vultures. It was time for us also to sit on the earth and be gazed at. We were just off the bun, so obviously we were going to attract people, and anticipating Nick's reaction, I thought that chanting the Metta Sutta might create the kind of space that would keep things tranquil. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near or far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. The suppressed chattering behind us and the agitation beside me became more turbulent, so we turned. Up on the bank, a gaggle of youths and men were looking on with excitement. Two men dressed in the Indian Western style were wreathed in smiles, one supporting a moped, the other jigging up and down in rapture. We are very happy to see you. We are very pleased to see such devotions that you are doing. It makes us very happy, very, very happy. His cycling companion's smile widened into a beam spreading across his smooth, bespectacled countenance. It was the dancer, however, who was the man of words, a torrent, in fact, a rhapsody of delight. 
We are very much appreciating such noble activity and expression. It gives us such great happiness to see you. He actually wriggled with glee. Infectious stuff that brightened even Nick's tetchy reactions. The dancer introduced himself as Naval Kishore Singh and his friend on Hero Honda motorcycle as Mr. Tiwari. Mr. T was silent, but affirmative smiles underlined his broad, glossy brow. They were both school teachers. Mr. Singh taught English and very much admired Shakespeare. He was certainly too large in gesture to be properly savoured off stage. Mr. Tiwari taught science and was, we were dramatically assured by Mr. Singh, of very noble character. He has great affection for his children. He is very, very affectionate towards them. Mr. Singh's body seemed to operate in a different gear from his words. Although each sentiment was proclaimed with great emphasis, his body, head lowered and thrust forward, brows puckered, adopted the posture of someone imparting a confidence. But when I slipped in an inquiry as to whether he had a religious practice, whether he did pujas or worshipped God at some times, the covers came off. I am always worshipping my Lord. All day I am praising my Lord. I sing. I dance. Sympathetically, the body squirmed with consummate glee. Fortunately, his partner of glowing brow, whose beam broadened to the point at which the lower part of his face seemed in danger of falling off, imparted a moonlike serenity to the dance. In fact, it was Mr. Tiwari who, by some slight gesture and inaudible phrase, got us moving. Myself, Nick, with Mr. Singh importuning us to stay at his house, himself and the hero Honda, which turned out to be in some minor state of disrepair, and a dwindling group of lesser characters ambling along the bund in the evening. Nick kept declining the offers firmly and explaining with calm authority that we were pilgrims, and that meant sleeping outside. This only served to heighten the rhetoric that accompanied the invitations. Eventually, Mr. Tiwari dropped off with the bike, and Mr. Singh disappeared. We strode into the dusk looking for a tree to camp under, not very far before Mr. Singh returned solo with redoubled pleas. It was his duty. He must perform his duty. Otherwise he will be a disgrace. But we were bound to homelessness. Nick's ploy was adept and delivered squarely and with majesty. You have done your duty. We are very grateful. You have offered us your hospitality. You have done your duty very well. We thank you. Now we must go. Turning back to the path and striding on, he seemed to have stopped the show until the next morning. As we passed through a village, Mr. Singh was at the gate of his house, ecstatic and calling us in with siren songs of food. The love of solitude and homelessness capsized with the first few bars of the song. After all, we were arms mendicants and our duty was to receive offerings. On the veranda in the front yard of the large house was a group of Mr. Singh's associates, fellow thinkers and philosophers, and a pot of milky tea. 
He was Mr. Singh's nephew, voluble but bitter, a commentator on the political scene. Another one seemed to be dozing in a chair until Nick began inquiring about plants, and he reeled off in a monotone the name of every species in the surrounding landscape. Then entered the smiling wife. We have great affection for each other, great affection. Bustling in from the kitchen area with two plates of hot, tasty parotas and mango and lime pickles. She is very cunning. Enough to give any homeless wanderer serious doubts about the alleged unsatisfactoriness of the household life. Down went those parotas four apiece, and as the plates emptied before our appetites, the daughters, correctly interpreting the feebleness of our protests, appeared to top them up with even more, fresher and more succulent parotas straight from the pan, five, then six, and more tea, while the thinkers and Nick exchanged ruminations on plants and land and the state of India. It was the transcendent Mr. Tewery who appeared again with moped and smile to signal the end of the cycle. I never heard him utter a word, but whispers were made in the ear of Mr. Singh, who realised ecstatically that he was late for school. Rather than precipitating action, this lateness seemed to be recognised merely as a state of being as worthy of celebration as any other. Perhaps it was Nick who brought down the curtain by having Messrs Singh and Tiwari pose for a photograph standing on either side of the repaired motorcycle. Bringing the hero Honda into the picture turned the balance. Devotion to the formless now turned to right action as, waving enthusiastically, the pair roared out of the gate and back up the bund. Nick Scott As we went on that morning, I thought over what had been said by one of the teachers, the one we later agreed was the Dormouse in this Mad Hatter's Tea Party. Mr Singh had introduced him with the same enthusiasm he had for everything. He was a teacher of biology, and a most splendid one, he told us. But I could get little out of him. That was until I hit on asking him if he knew the names of any of the plants. Then as he recited a long list of names of everything we could see, I was struck by how he could also say what everything was used for. I began to realise that we were looking at an entirely man-made landscape. The land we were walking through was some of the most fertile land in India, beside one of the big rivers. It would have been cultivated well before the time of the Buddha, perhaps for 5,000 years. As a result, everything we could see growing was there for a purpose. Maybe not everything had been planted, but it all must have been tolerated for a very long time. That, I realise, was why we had seen so little wildlife. The Indians may have a good attitude to living creatures, not killing them unnecessary and not eating them, but their intense management of this land 
meant no wild habitat remained for the wild animals to live in. In nearly two weeks of being outdoors, day and night, we'd seen just one small group of chital deer and a mongoose. I would see much more than that walking for a day anywhere in England. The only wildlife in any numbers were the birds, because they're able to live with so much human activity. I couldn't help but notice on the map that just before we left the Bund, after four days walking, we would at last be right next to the Great Gandak. That morning, an hour or so after leaving Mr Singh, we came round a bend and we were suddenly on a cliff being eroded by the river, trees behind, for once no one in sight, and the Gandak slipping slowly and mightily full of silt past us. It was the time for our normal morning stop, and Ajahn Suchito agreed that this would be a suitable place. So we sat overlooking the great river. Downstream, sailing boats were hauled up on a wooden jetty, and across the river, on the distant bank, grazed flocks of ducks and grey-lagged geese. This is what I'd been looking for. My heart trembled. At last, sitting by the river, feeling at one with it all. Shall we go on? asked Ajahn Suchito. We had had our standard fifteen-minute stop, it seemed, and my companion, as ever a chap of unwavering application, knew it was time to set off. I could have asked to stay, but that kind of thing is never the same if one tries to hold on to it. So we got up, and we went on. After just a few hundred yards, our route led away, and we turned inland, never to see India's great Gandak again. We joined a small road heading east, and were soon engulfed by a flock of boys on bicycles. There were thirty or more of them coming home from school, and as each caught us up, they slowed to stare. As usual with lads at that age, they weren't really interested in interacting with us, just curious about us as objects. They discussed us, laughed at us, and occasionally one of them would try out one of the English questions they'd learned in school. We tried to ignore them, but it's difficult to ignore 30 boys trying to cycle along with you. They were bumping into each other and regularly wobbling across our path. It was midday, my most intolerant time, so I began to get really annoyed. Eventually, we tried walking more slowly. In response, they slowed to our new pace, wobbling even more. So we slowed to little more than a crawl, and then they started to really wobble and bump into each other. They kept it up for a while, but it wasn't much fun, and slowly ones and twos began to break off and cycle on. Eventually all of them had gone, and it seemed we could walk on in peace. But then we came round a corner to find one of them outside his home, calling all his family and neighbours to see us go past. And for the next half hour, each group of houses along the road would have one or two of the boys outside calling out to everyone to come see the two strange men walking down the road. The last of these spectators were at the junction with a more major road. Our road continued on the other side, but it was no longer covered with tarmac 
and there were no houses and few people on it. With a sense of relief, we crossed the major road and took to the dirt. By mid-afternoon, we were walking along a quiet, slightly meandering track and passing through what must have been poorer land, as it was rough grazing dotted with shrubs and small trees. There was a glade amidst it, and amazingly, no one in sight. It looked an ideal place to have a short rest. So we turned off the road and tucked ourselves into a corner that couldn't be seen from anywhere. We thought we'd finally done it, found somewhere we could be left alone. Ajahn Suchita got his diary out, and I got out some sewing, and we settled back. No one would find us here. Within three minutes, one man had somehow seen us and stopped. He was then spotted by others, and within 15 minutes, we had a crowd of a dozen, plus two bicycles and a water buffalo, one of them had been herding. They stood in a half-circle at a respectful distance, discussing us quietly, while the water buffalo stood munching and letting out the occasional burst of urine. Nowhere in this land was away from people. The analogy we came up with at the time was walking across a city park on a sunny Sunday afternoon. You might think you had spotted a quiet corner with no one in it, but when you got there, someone was always there. To make it worse, we were like the ice cream van. Wherever we went, the people clustered around us. So we gave up on our peaceful glade and made our way on. We still had a long way to go to get to Fashali that night. Sitting in the shade of the glade, the afternoon autumn heat of India had been pleasant. But back on the road, it was oppressive again. My mind turned to the idea of tea, as it so often did in the afternoons. By this point in the walk, the lovely Indian milky tea I'd been buying in the afternoon was coming to an end. Milk was quite clearly classed as food in the monastic rules and so not supposed to be consumed after noon. Faced with the difficulty of getting tea without milk in India, other Western monks had given in, but not Ajahn Sajito. To begin with, he went along with their precedent, but then discovered with his growing Hindi and enough effort, he could get the chai waller to make black tea. I dutifully followed his lead, but could never quite summon the determination in my efforts to get the man to understand, and as a result, it often still came with milk. My heart was obviously not in it. The way Ajahn Suchito would accept milky tea without a fuss was when someone else offered it. Then he didn't want to reject their kind gesture. So I was often looking out for possible offers of tea. That afternoon, as our dirt track passed through the villages, I started looking for invitations. I walked along, attuned to any possibility, smiling at any likely offerers. Amazing how my attitude to the local people could change. The same people who could vex me so with their repetitive questions would seem completely different were they likely to offer milky tea. 
Achen Suchito. Writing it all down helped to keep the events experienced within some wholeness, some continuum. Without something constant to refer to, we'd all go crazy. I suppose most people use their homes, their relationships or self-image as the stable reference point. But in order to have some stable reference through the many changes of the pilgrimage, I tried to encompass every effort and every person involved with a blessing. Every day I would devote the effort of the walking to all the people that I had contact with so that something in us would move together on this journey for a while. My way of engaging with the changing hosts would be to take them into my mind and heart and record a few images in the little ochre silk bound book. That act connected them to the circle of Sangha that I was writing for. In a way, it hardly mattered how accurately anyone else could receive those images. At least, the cycle of watching and connecting encouraged my heart. Here are a few fragments that still remain. 30th, meal with Naval, plus nephew, plus dormouse, saw Gandak, bike mob, Devata, Bakra, Taveshali. The day's events hit us in different ways and brought up contrary responses. I'd slow down and talk when Nick felt like speeding up and getting away. He'd sit and linger when I felt like moving on. We were like a bike whose wheels were turned by different gears. But in the evenings, the gears had stopped whirring. There was less happening and we were tired out. The road had worn the two of us into a kind of dumb unity. Again, it was just the darkness and the walking. Yes, the evenings. The feeling that the challenges of the day were nearing an end and the possibility of finding a place to stop and recenter ourselves. And this end of November evening, as the pilgrimage came toward another full moon, Vaishali hoved into the reach of our fond expectations of peace and reason. Another man with a bike, a scooter this time, was waiting where the road wound through the ruts, crumpled straw and buffalo dung that signified a collection of human lives called Bakra. At the sight of duty to be performed, he turned his scooter in the opposite direction to the way he had been going and insisted on guiding us, accompanying us for the best part of an hour, taking us to a chai shop for tea and setting us on the good road to Vaishali. Here there would be no bandits, he proclaimed and turned back again, leaving us to the ongoing way. The moon glowed like Mr. T. Willie's brow surely growing fuller by the minute.